So tonight I'd like to talk about uh, an aspect of meditation called absorption and becoming absorbed in practice. And there are many levels of becoming absorbed, but as we begin to uh, have our attention less scattered, um, less bouncing around, something that feels more collected, the word for that is an old Indian word called samadhi. And I think it's actually, that word has actually stayed through time. So it may not even be an old Indian word, but it also used to be an old Indian word called samadhi. And it's one word that um, was translated into English as concentration. And many of us have found that that word is not so helpful um, the word concentration for samadhi. Um, when I was beginning, I was told I had to concentrate my mind. It, it meant kind of corralling my mind and using effort to get it to stay in one place. And that didn't really lead into a type of wholeness of attention. Um, it sort of was a little bit too forceful. So I like to leave this word untranslated uh, as samadhi and then over time let people get used to what samadhi is. And then when you feel samadhi, you can say, yeah, that's samadhi. (laughs) I grew up in Rhode Island and uh, uh, there's a really strong Italian culture in Rhode Island. So calling back to my my heritage of being around uh, Italian speaking people. So uh, samadhi uh, has many flavors And so many of you have been cultivating samadhi or this wholeness of attention um, all the way along. And one way you can know that your mind um, is developing this wholeness of attention is that you're not so easily distracted. If you can imagine the first night you came here or the first day you came here, there'd be, there was a lot of activity in the mind and a lot of checked outedness because there's just so much activity going on. And the body was somewhat restless, the mind was somewhat scattered. And that's what we, uh, that reflects how we use our mind in everyday life. We consider many things and we multitask um, to get through a complicated day. And then our minds begin to reflect that. So they're constantly juggling many balls, trying to keep track of many things, and our attention rarely is whole and collected. And then when you go to interact with people, especially people you care about, you're trying to give them your whole attention, but in the back of your mind, you're still thinking about tomorrow and thinking about yesterday and planning things in the back of your mind. And it's a very rare experience when you actually encounter somebody who can give you their whole attention. And people usually give you very steady eye contact with a quality of patience. And uh, it's, it's quite a thing to uh, look in someone's eyes when they're giving you their whole attention. So <clears throat> that wholeness of attention um, is part of what we're cultivating here. And it's part of what develops over the days that we're here. And that wholeness of attention uh, in this uh, word is called samadhi. The 
the way that we're cultivating samadhi here is through this practice of loving kindness, this metta meditation, loving kindness meditation. And it's one path in to collect our attention, to make our attention whole, is by practicing loving kindness. And this loving kindness meditation is uh, part of this uh, Buddhist tradition called Theravada. That one way that we practice meditation is through the repetition of phrases, repetition of images to bring a quality of heart forward and let that quality of heart be where our attention organizes. And so we're doing that with loving kindness. And then in the afternoon, we've been doing other heart qualities, compassion and uh, joy practice that we'll do later, and then equanimity practice. And these, um, these heart qualities go in a meditation tradition called the Brahma Viharas. And Brahma, uh, at that time in India, the Brahma realm was uh, the highest deity realm, was the Brahma realm. And Vihara is a word meaning a dwelling or a home. But it's more than just an average dwelling or home, it's a very sacred home. So where the monastics live is called Viharas, so where the nuns and the monks live are called Viharas. So it's not just any dwelling place, it's a dwelling place of spiritual intention. It's an elevated dwelling place. And so these heart qualities, um, when developed, bring about this divine dwelling, this divine abode. And it's first framed that this would be somewhere far away, like the Brahma realms compared to the ordinary human realm. But as our hearts not only become more gathered and collected, they're gathered and collected around this tone of warmth, around this heart quality of loving kindness. And so not only do you have loving kindness being brought forward, but the full scope of our heart becomes available in this channel of loving kindness. And when you start to walk through the world with your heart that open, that collected, that unified around loving kindness, it feels as if you're walking through a Brahma realm. It feels as if you're walking through a very sacred realm. And the earth hasn't changed very much. It's our heart that is transforming. And then when you walk around with a heart that's steady, that's present, that's not scattered, that's not tired or restless, or struggling with things that are fragmenting it, and you just walk down a path here and you take in the grass and you take in the lizards and the birds, you take in the turkeys, all the trees, the sky, clouds or not, the stars at night. As our attention gets more whole, and when it's gathered around loving kindness. In those moments, you may not particularly notice that you're in a state of samadhi, because on a retreat we often don't, it comes on so, so slowly, and we often feel like we have grand moments and we have boring moments and we're kind of practicing along, but anytime you walk here and you feel remarkably content and your mind isn't torn in two and exhausted, and there is a wholeness of heart to appreciate a flower or a lizard or uh, the tan of the grass, or just be able to look across uh, this view here and see the hills in the distance, and you feel a contentment within, a non-restlessness, 
um, that's samadhi. <laughs> so many of you have felt that, and it probably felt, if you felt that in everyday life, it would stand out. Usually we feel that at sunsets, or we feel that when we see people we are really fond of. Those are our standout moments. But here in retreat, we can feel a lot of those moments, and they, they feel more and more accessible so they don't stand out in much contrast. And then you walk from here down to the dining hall and back up again. The whole time you are not uh, drenched in anxiety or, or having your mind so scattered it was just full of jarbled content. More and more as the days go by here, our hearts are less agitated, they're less shook up. So we're experiencing a gradual, uh, broad-based samadhi by not agitating ourselves and not contemplating 10 things at once and not stressing ourselves with so many different things to attend, so many concerns. And we can find that we can actually rest in the present moment. We don't have to obsess about tomorrow. We don't have to obsess about yesterday. We don't really even have to obsess about an hour from now. We begin to learn that we can actually rest and dwell in the present. So that word, uh, resting and dwelling, is a translation of another old Indian word, uh, vihara. But the verb form of vihara is viharati. And so you're actively abiding, actively dwelling in the present. And that's what meditation is is an active resting in the sacredness of present time experience. So uh, often when that gets translated into English, it loses some of its uh, sacredness. It's like, I will dwell in meditation. It's like dwelling in meditation that almost could feel burdensome. But yeah, I'll dwell in meditation or I abide in meditation like the dude abides. It's like, yeah, I'm abiding in loving kindness. Like, does abide capture the sense of a sacred home? I wish we had words that could really capture that. But in simple translations, you'll see uh, one dwells upon loving kindness, one abides in loving kindness. But the uh, original word is viharati or vihara, and it means the sacred home where the monastics live, where they're intending to be free, they're intending to be wholehearted, they're intending to make that the priority of their life. And we get to do that as lay people. You don't actually have to be in a physical vihara, although it helps. While we're here, your dorms are actually kind of like viharas. And when we're resting here, this is a place of intention to gather and collect ourselves. And if your own heart becomes a place you feel home and you start to know moments of contentment where you're just a simple human animal wishing yourself well or another well. And over time, that doesn't stand out as all that extraordinary. And we may miss that as actually a profound moment that on day one would have been hard to access. But as we practice the days here, there is more accessible this sense of resting, wishing people well, not pushing too hard to become somebody different or achieve something different but you learn to rest in the flow of present time experiences. 
as we said in the beginning, that's actually a good basis for practice so that when you go to put in effort to steer your mind from its wanderings or to bring up loving kindness if that's not happening, you not do that from a place of discontent. You not do that in order to become somebody different. It's helpful to learn to rest in as much contentment as is available in these conditions. And from a resting place in the flow of present time experiences, from there begin to welcome loving kindness, not as a way to get somewhere you'd rather be, but a way of bringing warmth into how you already are. It's a lot less striving. There's a lot less egoic distance you have to cover. You're learning to rest in the present. And then you'll notice that the present is made up of so many conditions you can't control that everything keeps changing. Your body is di- feels different throughout the day. Your heart and your mind is tired, then it's excited, then it's dreamy, then it's bored. So resting in the present moment goes to many places. And in each place that you go, you're asked to rest in that present set of experiences. And then from there, wish somebody else or yourself well-being and keeping it uh, as simple and restful and intentional as possible. And over the days of doing that, there's less agitation, there's less that you have to contemplate in terms of complexity. It's helpful to keep your practice very simple, very humble, just one sincere phrase at a time, not trying to do the practice to be a rocket ship to get to some destination you'd rather be, some meditative hope that you thought you'd have. Those were good to get you to the retreat, but then they torment you as you actually try to practice. And the whole time you're trying to get to be somebody else or work your mind or goad it or trick it or manipulate it or beg it to be different than it is, you rest in the mind that you have in that moment. And so a couple of things happen and they're all, they all tend to be healing. They all tend to be positive in their outcome. So as you're resting here, doing loving kindness practice, humbly and gently moment by moment with a steady determination to do that as many times of the day as possible without adding so much effort that you're trying to get somewhere else, but you're just trying to rest in the present and orient yourself towards loving kindness as much as possible in the moment you find yourself in. Several things happen and they're all, they all end up being good. One is that you just sort of wander through a lot of states, a lot of different body sensations, changes in your mind and mood. And each one you learn, yeah, when I'm tired, I can offer loving kindness. When I'm excited, I can offer loving kindness. I know how to do those two. I can do it when my mind feels very large. I can contemplate many beings. An hour later, I can barely contemplate one being, but still in that little ability of mine, I'm still pointing towards loving kindness. And more and more we relax into that. And it feels more and more like that's enough. That's enough for this human. I don't also have to achieve great things to actually be a humble human wishing yourself or another well it's enough for that moment. So we can actually lower the grandeur that's necessary and learn to rest in the moment we have and see if we can invite our heart to be warm in that moment. 
sometimes you'll come on a retreat like this and you'll intend to practice loving kindness and be simple about it and be dedicated, not too aggressive, but not too lax, and you're willing to put in your time. And through no blame or fault or praise of your own, your heart begins to let go of holding patterns that's held on to for a long time. And so you're practicing along and all of a sudden you find yourself remembering something you haven't remembered in a long time and with it comes a whole bunch of grief or you remember something that you said that was painful to another or you remember sometimes that you been experiencing something painful for yourself, a loss or someone uh, uh, speaking harshly to you. And so you're practicing through a steady loving kindness practice and the next thing you know, your heart is going through a lot of turmoil. And sometimes we come to the retreat with a certain amount of turmoil, so we experience that for the first couple of days and then the heart might begin to settle. And then you might feel another wave of upheaval. This ends up being forward leading and it, you have to build faith and understanding to understand why that happens. But I've come on retreats before to practice loving kindness, hoping that as the days went on, I would experience more stability of heart and more loving kindness. And yet on that particular retreat, what I actually experienced was a growing sense of irritation and uh, hatred and judgment of humans. And I was on one very long uh, loving-kindness retreat, and I thought I would master it in the first month and then go on to experience the grandeur of having mastered it for the next two months. That was my plan. <laughs> and I crawled out the end of it, just glad I had survived, because along the way, as my heart began to open, it began to be a lot more sensitive. And in that sensitivity, I found all these defensive patterns and all these judgments and criticisms of myself and of others. And I would keep coming in to see the teachers and I'm like, are you sure this is working? Because by my own measurement, this is really bad. Like if I had to judge myself on this, I would be a meta failure. And they're like, yeah, but you said that so kindly. And you said that so tenderly. And you said it so humbly. I actually feel it's working. And it's like, it's definitely humbling. But I was sitting with a lot of other people and I had to sit when everybody was walking because I couldn't stand being around other people and watching them walk. And then people would start coming in for the sitting and I was like, oh, not these people. <laughs> so I'd get up and I'd go walking and I was like, ah, I just can't be in the hall with those other people. And I was like, this can't be right. I'm supposed to be loving people more and more. But really, I just feel more and more irritated. So it took a lot of faith to keep going and my teachers were encouraging me and I didn't really believe that they knew what they were talking about, but <laughs> I would try it for another day, hoping that glory would eventually come. I was waiting for some type of great validating experience. And it came after the retreat and it wasn't all that glorious, it actually felt quite normal. But all that time I was actually uh, flushing out of my heart, irritation and judgment. So my heart felt quite uh, clean afterwards. It felt quite transformed. But the whole retreat, it was actually a scrubbing. Like John said, that sounds a little bit intense, but sometimes the practice scrubs our heart. And we were like, whoa, back off a little bit. This is intense. The Buddha gave an analogy of what it's like to purify gold. And so you find where there's a lot of gold in rock and you dig that out. 
And if you find a gold nugget, that's already purified, but often you find gold mixed in with a lot of other rock, and you heat it up. And what happens is the gold is heavier than most other elements in the rock. So as the rock heats up, the gold drains to the bottom of the crucible. And so if you're looking at the rock, you see the gold disappearing. And what stands out more and more of what is not gold, and so this is, it has to be going in the wrong direction. I'm heating it up, but the gold is actually disappearing. And what I see more of is all this not gold. But then at some point, you take all that is not gold and you can lift it off and what's down below is pure gold. And so he gave this analogy of how one purifies gold. And if you're going through a purification cycle on retreat, which is pretty much anything that happens after day two that's unpleasant, mm -hmm. I guarantee you it's probably, at least try on the idea that this might be a purification, that you're bringing consciousness, patience, awareness, kindness, into an old pattern of being frustrated or impatient. And then when that cycle is over, either on the retreat or as you leave the retreat or a month after the retreat, <laughs> eventually the purification passes and what's left over is true gold. And that true gold tends not to be egoically grand. It tends to be quite humble. This tradition does not build up a lot of glorious ego. This particular tradition softens and dissipates the collection of ego and of uh, that type of egoic pride, but it leaves one with a very open, fluid heart. And all that while, while it looked like the gold was disappearing and the, they call it the dross, the what is not gold, was actually magnifying. It was just separating. The gold is going deeper into the system. You take the dross off and afterwards they're gold. After that long retreat, uh, which was all purification, I was doing uh, mad purification for a long time, I was walking around and there just wasn't anything inside me that could be stirred up into judgment. As judgy as my mind was on the retreat, it was actually quite absent after the retreat. And that's where I began to learn about purification and how it's actually sometimes more transformative than having peaks of where you love the whole world for 47 minutes and then you wish you could repeat that over and over and over and you can't, but you obsess about it. And that may be 47 minutes, that was really great. But actually having a time where you're in a hard place to be conscious inside yourself and you're in your own judgmental mind, your own fearful mind, um, and you're still willing to practice loving kindness there. You're still willing to try to say a phrase sincerely in a realm of your heart that's bored or lonely or critical of yourself or others. It's actually very transformative to do that. So for some of you, this particular retreat, for whatever cosmic reason, is going to be more in that purification side. And I wanna give you encouragement that that actually is still really valuable and you'll know more about what this retreat has done for you a month afterwards than you could actually measure on the retreat. The whole time you've been here, there have been waves up and down, but the tide has been rolling in, and we often measure ourselves by the waves, but we can't really measure the tide, how much the tide has rolled in. And when you drive away from here, you'll have a sense of how much was actually being cultivated here. So it's a better, it's a better, measurement 
when you go home and what the next week or two are like than what you could ever actually imagine, uh, measure on retreat. But if you're not in big purification cycles, and as you practice here and you're not stimulating yourself with a lot of complexity, generally the mind gets a little bit bored of all that complexity, is a little more, uh, um, it takes some rest and enjoyment of being simple and being present and being sincere and being able to steadily offer loving kindness phrases to people you cherish and to yourself. Those moments have a type of samadhi in them. And so you already are cultivating that, but you may not stand out to you as all that profound. But again, you have to contrast it to when you came in and had less samadhi, you had more restlessness, more distraction, more fragmentation. So that's a kind of a general collectedness that's happening. But around the first couple of days when there's a lot of settling has to happen, these windows begin to open up. And if the timing's right, you can't force samadhi. You can't force your mind to be collected. It's actually agitating to your mind to try to make it uh, be steady. So you welcome steadiness. You welcome collectedness. But any more effort would actually be agitating if you tried too hard. You welcome this collectedness, you welcome the saying of phrases, you settle in to a patient, steady practice. You get mature about the fact that there are waves and we get tired sometimes and the energy comes back and there's a little bit more driftiness and a little bit more capacity to be steady. And you say, yeah, I'm up for that ride. It doesn't always have to be immediately validating. I can sit through different uh, modes of my mind, modes of my body. There starts to arise these, these windows where it's actually not that hard to practice loving kindness. And again, you may not notice this. It may not stand out as all that profound. You might have thought there'd be more rainbow light or shafts of something, or you'd start floating, or your heart would feel larger than your chest. So we may be looking for grandeur, but actually to be steady in practice without being that distracted, and the mind actually enjoys uh, contemplating a friend, their beautiful qualities and how much you care for them, or appreciating a mentor, or actually being kind to yourself as you kind of just sit here breathing. That begins to, uh, what, that begins what we call absorption, where your mind is quite willing and quite able to rest in a stream of presence, in a stream of loving kindness. It's willing to say phrases, it's willing to feel loving kindness. A contentment might come over you, and it might not be grand, but it's the beginning of what absorption's like. And then when this window opens, and it's open for as long as it is, and then the mind gets distracted again, or goes in two places, or starts to get agitated again. So a window opened, and then it closed. And this is something I really, uh, if I could infuse you with something, it would be a lot of patience to not yearn for those windows to open and regret them when they close, but just keep some faith and keep steady. Because as you keep steady, these windows open a little broadly and a little more deeply, and the absorption happens for a little longer and a little uh, more depth.
So Bonnie talked last night about several factors of mind um, that are helpful, especially on a long retreat. But if you want to be a committed, conscious being, it takes some effort, it takes some courage, it takes uh, endurance, and it takes some determination. So if you're willing to be on retreat and you're willing to endure the ups and downs and be patient with it, if you're willing to give some uh, energy and that same word virya can be translated as courage. So if you're willing to practice with patience and courage, give yourself fully. And then if you have determination, another translation for this word aditana is to live into your vow. And so you might think, I would love a lot of people, but that might make me defenseless and I might need anger. And then you contemplate that a little bit. It's like actually anger weakens me. It makes me agitated. It makes me hostile. It makes somebody else defensive. I'm going to take a deeper vow towards love. I'm going to take a deeper vow towards respect. I'm not going to take the bait on anger and then meet anger with my own reactivity and get as lost as the person who uh, was harsh with me. I'm going to have these vows and my values and, and take vows of my values. I have vows of being present. I have vows of being kind. I have vows to put aside anger, to put aside uh, harsh uh, language and conduct. And I have, these, these are my values and I've been around the block long enough to know this is what I really want and this is what I vow. So if you have that vow that you're going to give yourself over to this bold, courageous, kind heart and develop the heart that could be friendly or kind or benevolent uh, to all beings. And you have the patience to endure the path that leads you there. With that steady practice, sometimes you can actually absorb quite deeply. The conditions are right where you find yourself really drawn into loving kindness practice. And then you start to feel the power of your heart rather than it just being, this is a settled moment and I'm sincerely saying phrases and I don't feel kicked around by a lot of forces. Actually, there was a moment where I really enjoyed it. I could do it for myself, I could do it for another, but it felt, it felt humbly average, but steady. There actually are moments where you start to feel yourself uh, really purified and you have a moment where you're like, you can see that hate is so toxic. And if we don't know how to protect ourselves, we might use hate to feel like we're empowered. And so I might hate somebody and then I feel like they're not going to get over on me because I've actually stored up this anger towards them. And next time they see them, I'm dark and they're not going to push me around because I'm actually working up my hate towards them. In that moment of loving kindness, you can feel how much you are harming yourself with that habit. And you get this sense that actually love can be powerful and love can be steadying and staying with respect and a respectful view. And if someone's disagreeing with you, you don't have to agree with them. But while someone is trying to invite you into their anger realm, and you might go into it or you might have a fear reaction, you can actually take a breath 
and stay steady in your own body because you've actually seen something that's hard to access in daily life. It's a very profound love that might uh, come up in loving kindness practice. And those moments do start to stand out. So you guys are, you, you're experiencing some general samadhi, just if you ever find it easy or you're not agitated by strong forces, it's not hard to be present. But yet a deeper absorption can, um, absorption can happen and you begin to absorb very deeply into loving kindness practice or absorb very deeply into compassion practice or absorb very deeply into joy practice or equanimity practice or deeply into forgiveness. Then you can start to feel this hidden capacity of your own heart that it can go beyond what you experience in daily life. But there are moments that happen where the sun arises in your own chest. And then when you hear quotes about uh, like Malala's uh, insight and the fact she wasn't going to hate the Taliban, we might think, wow, I don't think I could do that. But when you start getting into deeper absorptions, you start discovering, no, actually I have that heart too. That's not something left only to great people. Actually, all human hearts have a boundless capacity. And this is an understanding in our tradition that every human heart has a boundless capacity if it's cultivated, if it's not blocked. If you allow yourself to discover this boundless capacity, you begin to have a heart that opens up quite wide, that feels quite powerful. It's an important thing to learn about your own heart, to give yourself over to the practice, sink as deeply as possible into that present moment with just a lot of devotion and sincerity. Let go of all your backup anger, all your backup resentment that you might use if love was not enough, at least I have this list of what I resent about you. So I tried loving you, but then if you're really a jerk, I have this list, it's like, no. I let go of all my lists. I let go of all the weapons. My family is an academic family. And um, one thing I noticed when I went to college is that not everybody had my family's habits. <laughs> it was like, a, when I left home, I was like, wow. I, I grew up in a very specific household, as did we all. And part of my family's culture was an academic culture. And so having a very volatile, intense argument that you could launch and someone else would only have a few moments to launch their attack, and there'd be this arms race very quickly, and one of you would run out of bombs to use, and the last person who could throw a bomb would kind of win. So these things would happen very intensely, and so I noticed that I was constantly collecting information I could use. Not that I needed it today, but I would probably need it sometime in the next month. So that my sister did that, or my dad did that. So I was like, having to remember these things and keep them at the ready, because as soon as someone got pissed, they would attack me and I had to attack them back and we would just arms race. <laughs> so I was walking around and I'd keep forgetting the things I was resentful about. <laughs> and that didn't seem like strength to me. I actually had to spend time remembering what I was resentful about. <laughs> so as someone attacked me with their list, I had my own list. I was like, you did these seven things. Yeah, well, you did 12 things. Like, I did 12 things? Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? You did 12 things. <laughs> but I keep forgetting the 12 things. And so I had to kind of like go back through 
and remember what I was resentful for. So I had things at the ready in case somebody came at me. But if you actually remember all the things you're resentful for, it kind of makes your heart toxic. And as soon as you get triggered, these 12 things come tumbling out and you kind of just want to say one thing, like, could you stop squeaking your, your whatever, your chair on the floor? But it's like, stop doing that and these 12 things. <laughs> and they start tumbling out and then all of a sudden they blast you with their 17 things. And so we're getting into these, these arms races of resentment. And I started learning that on loving kindness retreats specifically, that I wasn't, when I actually was rooted in loving kindness, I wasn't so destable that I had to need another power source of anger or resentment or readying my attacks. And that made my heart actually rest more so when I did get into conflict with people, I wasn't as exhausted and I wasn't as, as ready to attack back. And that meant if someone was uh, pointing out why there was difficulty, my heart didn't go right into a reactivity. There's a little more capacity to listen. So as your heart absorbs in loving kindness practice, and this is something that you can invite yourself to do. I invite my heart to be full and to be whole and to take full contentment in just saying one sincere phrase at a time for as long as I can. And I see in my own mind where I'm harboring resentments for my own security, and I let go. I open all those storage containers of resentment, and I empty them out. I no longer need them. I no longer need to carry the weapons of resentment. There may still be things that have to be accounted for, but I won't hold them with resentment. I'll hold them with the fact that there's maybe a breach in the relationship that we have to talk about, but I won't encase it in resentment in order to hold a sense of personal power around it. These things get washed out. And one of the things that happens often when people go into an absorption is that they then open up a purification cycle either before or after. So sometimes you'll go through a purification cycle then you'll have easier access to an absorption because your heart has been purified and you taste that gold of your heart and that has you commit more to loving kindness because you taste how beautiful it is. And that commitment to loving kindness has you flush out all your stored resentments or defense mechanisms. So sometimes you actually can oscillate back and forth between a very sweet absorption and then a very tough time where a lot of impatience and reactivity comes out. The Buddha gave some examples of minds when they're absorbed that they're actually difficult to get into trouble. So <clears throat> he said that if, uh, if your heart isn't absorbed, it's like wet clay. And if you take a stone and you throw it at wet clay, it goes deep in. And so if your heart isn't already developed to rest full in loving kindness, and it's scattered, and then, then an insult comes or something happens to upset you, your heart goes into reactivity. That insult can go all the way into your core. But if you're practicing loving kindness towards yourself and towards others, you're actually occupying your heart with loving kindness and with patience. And so if you come across an intense situation, it actually makes it hard to get in. 
So he said a heart that's full, that's absorbed, is more like a, a door of hard wood and you're throwing a ball of string at it. A heart that's fragmented is like wet clay and any stone can make an impression. But a heart that's learned to fill itself with a beautiful quality is more like a hard door and throwing string at it. So the world will always be throwing, the world is always giving stimuli that are pleasant and unpleasant. If your heart isn't already stabilized and full of good intention, then when an insult comes, it'll find its way all the way inside you and begin to agitate you from within. But if you've been careful to fill your heart with, a, with stability and warm intentions, it's harder for things to intrude all the way to your center. He talked of, gave another analogy of a piece of dry wood is easily set a, uh, a fire. But if you take uh, green fresh wood, and especially wood that's been soaked in a river, it's so waterlogged that it's impossible to start a fire. So someone may want to pick a fight with you and they want to spread the fire in their heart into your heart and get you as worked up. But your heart has been uh, oriented towards kindness. It's actually hard to start a fire of hatred or a fire of fear or a fire of agitation. So as you practice here, you've already been doing it, but with a little more inspiration, you can give your whole heart like, let my whole heart be occupied by loving kindness. Let my whole heart be occupied by my appreciation of my friend. Let my whole heart be full of benevolence towards myself. And if I find pockets of resistance, I wash them out. I let them go. I let go of all of the little sticky bits that my mind is collecting uh, that lead to resentment or judgment. There are uh, five factors of mind. One of the things the Buddha did is he studied the mind and saw all the moving pieces of the heart and the mind. So we have a, uh, a, a word called citta, and citta is what we would combine in terms of our emotional life and our cognitive life. So we often talk about our heart and our mind and our culture. If we say mind, it tends to not feel so emotional. If we say heart, it tends not to carry our cognitive ability to do math, for example. But chitta is all those parts in us, uh, all the, the whole part of our psyche inside that is emotional and cognitive and theoretical and full of images and inner voices and moods and emotions. That's this realm of chitta. And so the Buddha saw into a human chitta and into a, a, a cognizant mind and heart and saw the moving pieces of it. And he said, you can just keep practicing if you want, but you can also study the factors that lead towards absorptions. And you can see if you have any of these factors that are deficient. It's very hard to go into a full meditative absorption if one or more of these factors is deficient. So as you're practicing, you can use this list just to test and see how am I right now? And an hour later, how am I right now on these factors? 
So one very important factor is called sukha, and that has the same Indo-European root as our word sugar, the SU of it. So it's a sweet contentedness. It's a happy contentedness. So as you're practicing, you actually are uh, invited to practice in a way that makes sukha or contentedness more possible. For that reason, we don't sit with a lot of body pain if we're trying to develop absorptions. Body pain tends to be elucidating to about our reactivity, but it tends to bring agitation to us. But bodies are not always comfortable, so sometimes you have to sit with some body discomfort. But if you're sitting in a way that brings about body discomfort, it's actually helpful to learn how to sit in a way that's a little more easy on your body. So as you come in to sitting or as you go out walking, anytime you're intentionally trying to be present, it's helpful if you breathe in and out and approach that flow of present time experiences in a way that will cultivate contentment in the present moment. And if you're practicing in a way that blocks contentment, that should be important. That, that, that's a wrong way to practice if contentment is being barred from your practice. I worked with one very intense Burmese teacher who had me approach with so much effort that I was exhausted and kind of gristly as I was going through my practice. And the very way I was practicing didn't allow for any contentment. But he was quite impressed at my ability to crawl through the realms of samsara with this dogged determination. It just wasn't, uh, it ended up being very uh, helpful to me. I developed some strengths, but I was not very balanced. And the person who had the biggest impact on me when I spent a year in Burma was a nun named Sister Dipankara, and she was um, known for being one of the more phenomenal yogis of our time. Her ability to drop into these absorptions and know heights of human potential of what the heart can do. Um, she had it very early on as a child and then developed it into a, a mastery. And one time she was giving me advice and she said, don't put in a lot of effort until you're content because your effort will be corrupted by your discontent. And I said, my whole practice tastes like discontent. <laughs> so I would never put in effort. And she said, try to find another way to practice so that contentment is more the basis of your time in intensive practice. And that was a, that was a turning point. I began to look at how many ways I was practicing that actually barred me from feeling content because I was so assertive and then tired and then I would try to overcome the fatigue with more effort, which would make me more tired. And then I would win, but then I would lose and I would just kept on trying effort and it wasn't the only thing worth trying. So one factor that leads to this absorption, this samadhi, is a growing sense of contentment. And that might emerge just as you spend the days here, but you also could be more intentional about cultivating contentment as a mode of practice, not waiting for it to come because of circumstances, but see if you can practice in a way, if you can sit in a way, if you can breathe in a way, if you can pace yourself in a way, as you go through the day, there's more of this restful peacefulness, not as the ultimate outcome of practice, but the way that you practice. 
So it's one of the one of these five factors. Another factor that helps with absorption is taking interest in what you're doing. And so you'll notice that as you practice, sometimes it's interesting, and other times you're just putting in the effort, but you've lost interest. There are times you have to kind of keep practicing through that time. But if your practice doesn't have a lot of interest in it, and you're just doggedly putting in your hours, hoping something good will happen, you can stop and just take a step back and renew your interest. And so there are some classic ways to renew your interest. You don't just put in effort as a sort of a meditator robot. You stop and you contemplate. This, these are hard, hard circumstances to come by. Every hour here is actually quite precious. So let me renew and rekindle this inspiration for being here. Let me get in touch with my intentions. Let me get in touch by what inspires me. Let me reflect a little bit and see if I can awaken and renew my sense of this is important. This is actually right along with my values. And I seem to have lost that over the last few hours. But let me recover this sense of interest, the sense of the beautiful preciousness and to say metta sincerely for people you love is a deep value of heart, a deep beauty of heart that we can love each other. And a little bit of reflection like that, you might find that you actually can dispel some sense of disinterest or some sense of flatness. Sometimes the conditions are such that you can try all your interventions that you want and you're just going through a time when the heart is a little bit tired and it's hard to actually cultivate interest. But you also want to be careful not to practice in a way that keeps um, crushing your interest. So one way to do that is to become a workaholic meditator where you're very good on willpower, but that's all you're relying upon is dogged determination and willpower. And you'll find that you have very little access to sukha, to this contented well-being. And you're not really being led by inspiration. You're not being led by delight. You're not taking delight in how much you love the turkeys. You're not taking delight in how much you love life around you. When that's more natural and when you invite that, that helps you absorb. Then the present moment is a place you really want to rest in. So the first couple of absorptions, they come in depths. The first couple of absorptions are notedly, they notedly taste like what's called piti sukha. And piti is this delighted interest and sukha is the settled contentment. And if you mix them, it's like the perfect uh, salad dressing with oil and vinegar. You get all the delight, but it's sort of a settled delightedness. So the delight is not agitating and the settledness doesn't make you go unconscious into kind of a, a happy unconsciousness. You let this piti and sukha, piti is the delight, it's the upwelling energy and sukha is more settling. So again, just due to the changing conditions, we can't always have access to these, but as the days go by, these factors of feeling PT, the delight of the mind, and sometimes you feel these in your body. So sukha in the body is when your body feels really content being still. And PT in the body is when you feel tingling in your body, you feel all sorts of subtle sensations, and sometimes you feel them at the same time, both a settledness and within the settledness, there's all this delightful energy playing. 
that's when you have PT and Sukha well balanced. They're really helpful for welcoming the heart into the present moment. And there are two other factors, and it's, you can use these, and these are a little more willful, but it's careful, be careful not only to use these two. So one's, the, uh, we started with the, with the old Indian word uh, uh, sukha, sweetness, and then piti is the delightedness. There are two more of how we direct and sustain our attention. One's called vitaka, that's the ability to steer your mind. And it's not just pointing your mind in a certain direction, but it's really taking in where you've aimed your attention. So I could have you look at these statues and look out the window and look out the other window. So you can always point your attention, but can you stop for a moment and really take in where your attention has landed? So really taking in what you're seeing, really taking in the phrases, really saying them with sincerity. That moment that applies the heart intentionally, that's called vitaka, or we call that aiming the heart. Or, I mean, in addition to aiming the heart, you intentionally sustain it. This is where I want my intention to stay. So I aim my attention towards, say, these candles, and then I intend to stay with them. I'm not just checking in for a moment and then wandering off, but I'm sustaining my attention. That second one is called vichara. So now we've talked about four factors that are helpful for absorption. One is practicing with sweet contentedness. The other is renewing your interest and delightedness in practice. That's PT. There's vitaka vichara, which is saying in this particular form of loving kindness, when your mind wanders, you bring it back and you deliberately say the next phrase. You recall the image. And you'll notice when you point your attention towards the phrases, but there's not much life in it. So yeah, you're saying the phrases, but it's become a little bit flat. Or you say it with a little more determination, a little more sincerity. Maybe safe, maybe happy, maybe happy. I'm just sort of like shallowly saying the phrases. Yes, may you be safe. May you be happy. And you recover that intentionality. That's when you'll taste that vitaka and vichara are there. There'll be more deliberation to connect fully and sustain your heart. It's easier to connect and sustain your heart if there's interest and contentment. So I recommend making sure contentment and interest, you that you blow on the coals and see if you can get contented and interest and interest. Uh, ripening in your practice, but you can often aim your attention and sustain it without much interest or without contentedness. And so sometimes during hard periods, you will use these two factors of aiming and sustaining, clarifying your mind, even when it's bored, even when it's restless, even when it wants to be elsewhere, I will come back and say these phrases sincerely. Often when people are talking about these five factors, they start with these two, and there's a belief that if you start with these two, you automatically get the next two. And I practiced in a way where I was so work-oriented that I didn't have access to interest and contentedness. And then Sister Deepankara said, before you do the work of steadying, steadying your attention, make sure there's, an, there, there's a sense of contented happiness and interest in what you're doing. So I reverse the order on those two.
And the last one <clears throat> is called ekagata, and ek is the old word for um, one. It's actually their, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go into language. So one-pointedness. I don't like the word pointedness because it, again, is too much of a contraction. It's really having one frame of attention. And so you give yourself with full devotion, although my life is quite complex, I give the whole of my life in this moment to be grateful and appreciative of my dog. And I do that again, although there are many things I could contemplate. I give the whole of my attention in one direction. This is the fifth factor. Practice in a way where you offer the whole of your heart, not parts of your heart, but the whole of your heart to say phrases, to commit to one being uh, or several beings, but you're putting them all in one frame, one frame at a time wholeheartedly. So these are called the five factors of absorption. The old word is jhana. So if you know about jhana, but you also call it absorption. And the reason that our hearts do absorb, if you notice at a time when the practice is quite easy, these five factors are probably supporting you and you may not have noticed it before. So during a time of ease, you can say, well, I wonder if these five factors are here. Yeah, there's a kind of a contentment. Why? Well, yeah, I am finding it interesting. I have directed my mind and I have intentionally sustained it and my whole heart is engaged in what I'm doing. Well, that, those five factors were there when my mind was absorbed. You can also say, if my mind isn't absorbing easily, which one of these factors feels weak? So I'm trying to do the practice, but it's very hard to actually feel absorbed. And you can see if one or more of these factors is weak. I'm content, but I'm not that interested. I'm content and interested, but I'm not that focused. I'm focused, but I'm, I'm delighted by many things. So I focus, but then I go over here, and that's kind of cool, and I go over here. Oh, I'm not sustaining my attention in the practice. Or am I being wholehearted or half-hearted or 90%, but not 100%? So you can look at these five factors. You can also put them aside if it's too many things if it makes your mind complicated, but if you want to understand the mechanism of how we absorb, and absorption becomes something you're actually interested in, in really cultivating it intentionally, then actually tracking these five factors becomes how we cultivate uh, the ability to fully absorb in practice, whether it's loving kindness practice, or breathing meditation practice, or really any meditation practice. These five factors are really helpful so you can use them in consort with loving kindness practice. You do say the phrases, you intend loving kindness, you see if you can do in a way that you're content, in a way that you're interested, in a way that you are intending your mind to be directed, sustained, and wholehearted in the practice. You also can let this list go and just practice and you'll be ripening these factors anyhow so you can do it consciously or not. So with that, let us turn back towards our formal practice and let's start just by sitting together for a moment. Take a few breaths in and out and let your mind shift from listening mode and 
contemplating mode. And see if you can find that orientation towards ease and contentment just sitting here. The peacefulness, the non-complexity. Just being an animal, sitting still, inviting your heart to be simple and content. And then from that place of simplicity, see if you can say a few phrases of loving kindness with humble, wholehearted simplicity. I wish you safety, happiness, and health. May you live with ease. May you rest wholeheartedly, moment by moment, in the practice. Now it's time for walking meditation. And remember, if you wanted to come just for the chanting and then go to rest, you can do that. And uh, either way, enjoy your evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.